Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have with me on the show today one of our incredible chief residents, Dr. Stephen Freiberg, who is inaugurating the ACRAC resident segment. He is coming on. He's taken an interest in massive transfusion, and he's going to come on and talk to us about it. He's put a lot of work into preparing this, and I'm really excited to hear what he's got to say. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jed, for having me. I'm really excited to be here and do my first, I say, ACRAC podcast, but really any podcast. Awesome. I am thrilled to be hosting your first podcast. So today I wanted to talk about massive transfusion, mainly because anesthesia providers give a lot of blood. In fact, we're one of the leading providers of blood transfusions in the healthcare system. Additionally, admittedly, I'm known to be of a, a bit of a black cloud. I've been involved in multiple massive transfusion scenarios. Some have actually been in excess of 300 units of blood products. And it's one of those clinical scenarios where everything you read in the textbooks is very real in terms of effect and complications. So I think it's critical to know how to recognize and manage those complications. Additionally, complications related to blood product transfusion appear to be frequently tested on written boards, and I can only say appear to be tested based upon the practice questions I've seen. I have not yet sat for the written boards. But I think for once, the written questions align nicely with a topic that is very clinically relevant. And certainly there's no shortage of topics that can be addressed regarding complications of blood product utilization. There's ongoing debate about restrictive versus liberal transfusion strategies, proper transfusion ratios, transfusion reactions, ethical questions related to blood transfusion, and then certainly much debate about the use of adjuvants like factor 7 or tranexamic acid, far too much to be covered in a single podcast. So my goals for today are to define massive transfusion, discuss some of the basic principles and strategies for administering a massive transfusion, and then discuss the complications of massive transfusion and how to potentially recognize and treat those. Additionally, I'll do my best to pepper in relevant written board type questions. And lastly, I may throw in tidbits about pediatric patients, but overall we'll focus on adult patients. So I think we're ready to get started. All right, that sounds awesome. So, you know, Stephen, 300 units, certainly massive transfusion, really an important topic when you're looking at this kind of blood loss. So I'm excited to learn what you've got to teach us. And then uh, I think you're exactly right that this stuff comes up on your in-training exams and your board exams and is really important to know both for that reason and, of course, for taking care of patients when it happens. So let's dive in. Do you want to start by telling me a little bit about the epidemiology of this? Absolutely. So hemorrhage is the most common cause of death in the first hour of arrival to a trauma center. 80% of OR deaths and 50% of deaths in the first 24 hours after injury are due to exsanguination and coagulopathy. 3% of civilian trauma patients receive massive transfusion, but these patients actually consume 70% of the blood in a trauma center. And mostly today we'll be speaking more so about civilian trauma, though certainly a lot of this data has come from military studies. And I often think about massive transfusion in terms of trauma, and it's generally the best studied, but certainly many other common scenarios for massive transfusion, including cardiac surgery, 
liver transplant surgery or major vascular surgery, specifically aortic surgery, GI bleeding, and obstetric hemorrhage. Yeah, I think uh, we really hear a lot about obstetric cases that can end up using dozens or even hundreds of units of blood. So this is, as you say, definitely not limited only to trauma. Really important, as you mentioned, major cause of death uh, in, in major centers is exsanguination. And 70% of the blood, I just want to highlight what you said because it's such a striking statistic, 70% of the blood in, in uh, major centers going to 3% of the patients. So uh, when it happens, it happens pretty big. Indeed. All right. So why don't we back up a second and talk about what exactly is massive transfusion? Is there a definition? What can you tell us about how, how we should think about this term? Perfect. Because, of course, it is important to define the term we're focusing on. And interestingly, there's quite a few definitions of massive transfusion in the literature. Historically, massive transfusion was defined as transfusion of 10 units of red blood cells in 24 hours. And this historically came about because approximately 10 units of blood is the amount of blood a 70-kilogram adult has in their vasculature. But 10 units in 24 hours undoubtedly sounds laughable to anyone who's been involved in a major trauma or other case where massive hemorrhage occurs where we might give 10 units of product in a matter of minutes. So I found some additional useful definitions. As we mentioned, loss of entire blood volume within 24 hours, which is quite similar to the 10 units in 24 hours. Another definition is 50% of the blood volume in three hours, ongoing bleeding at greater than 150 milliliters per minute, or rapid bleeding with circulatory, circulatory failure despite volume replacement. Interestingly, there's also a scoring system to predict the need for massive transfusion. One of the best validated and simplistic is the assessment of blood consumption score, or the ABC score. And for civilian trauma, it has a sensitivity of 75 to 90% with a specificity of 67 to 88% that looks at whether the injury is penetrating or not, the first ED systolic blood pressure of less than 90 millimeters of mercury, an ED heart rate of greater than 120 beats per minute, and a positive FAST exam. Each of those is awarded a point, and a score greater than two predicts the need for massive transfusion. But ultimately, I think there is an element of gut feel or, intuit- or intuition to activating a massive transfusion. The polytrauma that's coming up to the OR who's unstable, or you hear about the ruptured AAA, it's a liver transplant take back who's pouring blood out of his drains. I'm likely to call the blood blank, excuse me, the blood bank in these scenarios and initiate massive transfusion protocol to mobilize the necessary resources to have blood products available quickly and voluminously. And you'll notice important that I've mentioned specifically a massive transfusion protocol. And that's important because both the American College of Surgeons and the ASA Committee on Blood Management advocate for institutional protocol for massive transfusion. The general goal is for the protocol to mobilize the necessary resources while also providing guiding principles for damage control resuscitation as well as giving a standard way to assess the endpoints of resuscitation and to assess and manage the complications of massive transfusion, all in order to attain the best outcomes for the patient. Now, there are likely variations from institution to institution, but the overall principles tend to be similar, and we'll review some of them here. Great. All right. So a lot of great information there. Let's just review for me one more time because people may have thought, oh, this is great. I want to remember what is the AB, what are those three components of the ABC score? Three components, excuse me, four components of the ABC score is whether the injury is penetrating or not, the first blood pressure in the emergency room, uh, systolic blood pressure less than 90, a heart rate greater than 120, and a positive FAST exam. Okay, great. So 
Four components, if you have, how many points does it correlate? A score greater than two predicts the need for massive transfusion for that patient. Great. So if you've got three or four of these things, penetrating trauma, first blood pressure less than 90, heart rate greater than 120, or positive fast, three of those four is going to be a positive uh, outcome on that test. And then uh, massive transfusion protocols, as you said, differ from place to place. Who can activate them differs, and what they entail differs as well. But find out if you're out there at an institution and you don't know what your massive transfusion protocol is, you want to find out how to activate it and what it gets you when you activate it. Do you think that makes sense? I couldn't agree more. All right. So I think we'll get, uh, Stephen, you're going to give us some information on, on our, here at Hopkins, what we do in terms of our mesh and transfusion protocol, just so people have an example. But uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. First, why don't you sort of tell us a little bit about the principles of how this works? Sure. And even before we get into the principles of massive transfusion, have to speak just a little bit about IV access. So arterial lines are fun, and central lines are even better. And it may very, it may very well be that the patient will end up requiring those things, but can... I cannot overemphasize the importance of good peripheral IV access. The ATLS guidelines, first step for resuscitation in terms of access, are two large-bore peripheral IVs in the upper extremities. So if I'm working in a team and delegating tasks, I certainly make sure that someone is working on peripheral IV access. With two 14-gauge IVs, you can run a rapid infusion device. Here at Johns Hopkins, we use the Belmont. Full blast can transfuse blood blood products over 500 milliliters per minute with acceptable line pressures. So just had to say a quick word about that. Yeah, I think that's great and really important. And, and for people out there who are not clear on this, the you may remember from your physics or your, your pre-med classes or med school that the determinant of how fast you can give fluid through a line depends, on, as we all know, on the diameter, but also on the length, and that's really key. So a central line is much longer than a peripheral line. And so a peripheral IV that is a decent diameter, and certainly a 14-gauge has a healthy diameter, will give you higher flow rates than a thinner or even a similar diameter long central line. And that's why if you can get good peripheral IVs, you can really resuscitate through those uh, in, a, in a very fast and efficient manner. And then just in case anyone was wondering, Stephen mentioned ATLS, and that's Advanced Trauma Life Support. So uh, yet another one of these like ACLS and BLS, a, a protocolized life support, and they put out some guidelines, and that's what you mentioned in case anyone was wondering what ATLS was. All right, so we've got your, your line recommendations, so let's talk about uh, how massive transfusion works. Perfect. So some of the guiding principles of massive transfusion is that in the treatment of acute hemorrhage and hemorrhagic shock, the first priority is to stop the hemorrhage. But the second, albeit concurrent, priority is blood transfusion. The aim of hemorrhagic shock treatment is the rapid and effective restoration of adequate blood volume, all in order to maximize tissue oxygen delivery. That's really the end point of everything we do in this case. And furthermore, the goal of transfusion of blood and blood products is to maintain the patient's blood composition within safe limits with regards to hemostasis, the oxygen carrying capacity, oncotic pressure, and just generalized biochemistry, really trying to keep it as similar to the patient's starting blood composition as we can. Therefore, the additional administration of other blood components, in addition to packed red blood cells, namely plasma, platelets, and sometimes cryoprecipitate, is necessary for the prevention of dilutional coagulopathy and dilutional thrombocytopenia. So that's sort of the overarching goal of massive transfusion. Some additional principles that have kind of complement that goal is number one is to give blood early. 
obviously it might be necessary to start with crystalloid or colloid for resuscitation, and certainly the crystalloid versus colloid argument is one in its own right that we certainly won't get into today. But if massive losses are if massive losses are expected or to be continued, there's some evidence to suggest it's better to start giving blood product early, and this is primarily to avoid that dilutional effect. Number two is to transfuse blood products using standardized ratios. Again, the whole point here is to replicate transfusion of whole blood. There actually are institutions that have whole blood, but there's very few. And the problem is the storage time for whole blood is so short. So we do the best we can with our um, broken blood products to help replicate whole blood. Some debate exactly to where that ratio lies, the perfect ratio, but the general consensus is that the packed red blood cells to fresh frozen plasma ratio should be between 1 to 1 and 1 to 2. Of note, the proper trial in JAMA in 2015 by Holocom et al. investigated patients with severe trauma and major bleeding and looked at early administration of plasma, platelets, and red blood cells either in a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio compared to a 1 to 1 to 2 ratio, 2 being the red blood cells. So they're getting slightly less platelets or plasma in that case. And they did not notice any significant difference in mortality at either 24 hours or 30 days. However, more patients in the 1 to 1 to 1 group achieved hemostasis and fewer experienced death due to exsanguination by 24 hours. And even though there was an increased use of plasma and platelets transfused in the one-to-one-to-one group, no other safety differences were identified between the two groups. So largely as a result of that study, here at Johns Hopkins, our trauma massive transfusion protocol, if you activate it, the blood blank, excuse me, the blood bank will send you a cooler with six red blood cells, six FFP, and one apheresis pack of platelets. And basically, one apheresis pack is equal to a six-pack, therefore giving the one-to-one-to-one ratio. Another guiding principle for massive transfusion is to transfuse to the restoration of perfusion, but to allow normotension or even hypotension. Basically, you're trying to ensure palpable pulses, adequate urine output, observe a downtrending lactate, but potentially to allow for a low, even a, a normal to even low blood pressure, often termed hypotensive resuscitation, this may allow for better hemostasis and even might suggest better end organ perfusion in that you have better end organ flow. Additionally, a lot of these patients we're referring to, specifically in trauma, are otherwise young, healthy adults who can likely tolerate a lower blood pressure. Another key component of massive transfusion is frequent laboratory testing. For this reason, your patients likely will require an arterial line, but as I mentioned, probably more important to their survival is to have good IV access to get the products in. Among the frequent laboratory tests to be performed would be an arterial blood gas with base deficit, electrolytes, particularly sodium, potassium, and glucose, ionized calcium, lactate, coagulation studies like PTINR, PTT, platelet count, and fibrinogen, and certainly a growing and important role for viscoelastic testing, either TEG or thromboelastography or ROTEM, rotational thromboelastometry. And then the other huge point for massive transfusion is that there needs to be endpoints of the transfusion. And these can vary based upon the literature search that you do, but as guiding principles from the Massive Transfusion and Trauma Guidelines from the American College of Surgeons and Trauma Equality Improvement Program include the following, a hemoglobin greater than 10, 
Certainly some evidence suggests 7 to 8 is adequate, but we'll often aim higher for a patient who's actively bleeding. A PT of less than 18 seconds, which would correspond to an INR of 1.4 to 2. A PTT of less than 35 seconds, platelet count greater than 50,000. A fibrinogen greater than 150 to 180 is often the range you'll see in the literature. And then normalization of your viscoelastic testing. Additional components or endpoints of resuscitation would be a lactate less than four, and perhaps most importantly would be some of the clinical signs, declaration of surgical hemostasis by the surgeons, and observation of an improving blood pressure, heart rate, urine output, or decreasing vasopressor requirement. And then sadly, but an important endpoint to consider is futility. If it is deemed that there's so many injuries that cannot be sort of surgically controlled in a reasonable amount of time with a sort of controlled massive transfusion, one has to consider the economic effects and effects it can have on the greater patient population, and sadly, some of these cases are in fact futile to continue with the massive transfusion. Yeah, I think those are all really fantastic points. Um, one thing, uh, let me ask you, how accurate do you think of hemoglobin being in the setting of ongoing bleeding? That's a great question, because with ongoing bleeding, you're essentially losing an equivalent hematocrit. So in the immediate sort of resuscitation period, a normal or low normal hemoglobin is not necessarily a good indicator that everything is okay. Often you'll need some time for equilibration or crystalloid resuscitation to give you an idea that your hemoglobin has actually fallen. So that's a great point. Yeah, I think that's really important. And also another reason why, though normally we would shoot for a lower hemoglobin than 10 in a patient, for example, in the ICU who's not you know, massively bleeding, we shoot for greater than 7 or greater than 8 if they have cardiac disease. But in a patient who's massively bleeding in the OR, even if we get a hemoglobin back and it says it's 8, it may well be significantly less than that once everything settles out. So we would shoot for a little bit higher, as you said. Some recommendations even say higher than 10. Great. A couple other things. So you mentioned tissue oxygenation as being really key, and I think there's a lot of different ways to think about measuring this in your experience. What are you normally looking for? You mentioned some important things like just clinical signs. Does the patient look perfused? Uh, anything else in terms of numbers that particularly speak to you about tissue oxygenation? Certainly, um, we mentioned lactate and lactate less than four is often one of the things we look at importantly. And certainly the utilization of mixed venous oxygen saturation, though often at times with these patients, the priority is administering the blood product and running laboratory results that are a little bit easier to obtain. So being able to draw mixed venous from a central line or even a swan isn't something that we've done as often, but it certainly is an important marker of end organ perfusion. Yeah, I think that's great. The lactate is going to be a big indicator. Uh, clinical signs, as you said. Uh, and then if you do pull either from a central line a central venous sat or from a, from a swan, if you have one, a mixed venous sat, that'll give you some idea of tissue oxygenation. And, of course, if your lactate's going down, you're probably perfusing just fine. Um, all right. You mentioned uh, the ratios, and I think that's key. And if people want to look closer, more closely at the proper trial, uh, certainly I think a lot of centers, as you said, have now gone to one-to-one-to-one, to one to one, at least for trauma uh, because of that trial. Urine output, uh, so definitely if you've got good urine output, it's probably a good sign unless you have head injury and maybe have some DI. But 
low urine output's really tough, and I don't know sort of what you think, Stephen, but I tend to think low urine output, if everything else looks good, I don't worry too much about. The stress of surgery and certainly trauma can really uh, frequently lead to the release of ADH, and so I think of urine output as a not a great sign of perfusion of the kidneys, which it, it traditionally is taught to be, but I, I'm a little iffy about that. I think if everything else looks good, I don't worry in the immediate perioperative setting about low urine output too much. How about you? No, I completely agree. But often in these patients, they're not doing well. Um, So looking at urine output in the course of your resuscitation can be an important marker that if you're having adequate urine output of a half cc per kilo per hour to one cc per kilo per hour in the concurrent time course of your resuscitation, I think is a good sign. If other things suggest that you're adequately resuscitated, but your urine output might have dropped off some, I don't necessarily think it's crucial to keep chasing that urine output. And I agree with you. I think having that robust or good urine output is really nice to see if you can do it. Uh, Great. All right. You mentioned um, that the kind of hypotensive resuscitation may actually improve end organ flow. Any, Any kind of thoughts on how that works? Essentially, what you're trying to, again, accomplish is with physiology in general, we're often using blood pressure, systolic blood pressure as a surrogate marker for flow or perfusion. And that's certainly not a perfect marker. So the thought process is, again, to use lower blood pressures to maintain better hemostasis. Therefore, there's less surge force on blood clots and things of that nature to help from sort of almost a surgical standpoint. But in terms of tissue oxygenation, again, using systolic blood pressure alone is not a great marker for end organ perfusion. And therefore, by using lower blood pressure, but having markers of adequate tissue perfusion otherwise might suggest that you're perfusing that order better, that organ better than a higher blood pressure might suggest, in which case you might actually have an element of vasoconstriction and not as much blood being directly delivered to the to that organ. Yeah, so absolutely. I think those are all really important key things. And the other thing is that the human body evolved so that blood loss leads to hypotension. It turns out that anemia leads to hypotension even in the absence of hypovolemia. And the reason for that, as you probably know, is that hemoglobin scavenges nitric oxide. And so as you have less hemoglobin around, you scavenge less nitric oxide and you vasodilate. So it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint that it is probably advantageous if you are losing blood to have some amount of hypotension. And we don't totally understand all of that. You've pointed out some good reasons, certainly, to help stop ongoing bleeding. But also there's probably a tissue level increase in perfusion that happens based on the microenvironment that's happening. Certainly we don't want to cause hypertension for a variety of reasons and counter that evolutionary advantage that we've kind of evolved to have. All right, let's move on. So you've done your massive transfusion. You followed your protocol. There's a lot of advantages to doing it this way. Certainly you can save a life by getting them resuscitated appropriately, but there's downsides to everything. So what are some of the complications of massive transfusion? Exactly. And that's one of the most important things to consider is in the whole process of a massive transfusion protocol is managing the complications of the massive transfusion. So the first one we'll address are the acid-base disturbances that can occur with massive transfusion. Now, classically, massive transfusion is associated with metabolic alkalosis, and that's as a result of the citrate that is part of the storage anticoagulation solution for the blood products. Stored blood is actually acidic, but the metabolism of citrate in the blood produces bicarbonate. 
However, in the, pres- in the presence of lactemia from the massive transfusion or being hypoperfused or as a result of the hyperkalemia, which we will address later, acidemia might in fact be present. I've actually seen both metabolic disorders separately during massive transfusion, and often you'll have a mixed disorder in where you're essentially managing both. All right. So you can see acidosis, you can see alkalosis. Certainly uh, the citrate itself is going to cause the alkalosis. Uh, Citrate also can cause, you mentioned, hypocalcemia. Correct, and we will talk more about that. Great. All right. So what are there other complications you think about? Absolutely. Another key complication that I think about or that one will see with massive transfusion is hyperkalemia. Now, that's primarily because the potassium in the supernatant of red blood cells specifically increases by about one mil equivalent per day. However, because the volume of the supernatant is small, the amount of free potassium infused tends to be less than seven mil equivalents per unit, and this potassium typically moves intracellularly rapidly when warmed in the circulation. But this can rapidly become a problem in patients with renal failure, renal hypoperfusion, in pediatric patients, and namely in massive transfusion when large volumes are being transfused, especially into the central circulation. In fact, for this reason, pediatric patients, at least here at Johns Hopkins, receive fresher blood, so to speak, that have lower levels of potassium, and the patients do better for that reason. Now, importantly, other than looking at your frequent lab draws and seeing the actual potassium value... Some signs to look for hyperkalemia, assuming an anesthetized patient, would be peak T waves on your EKG. This can then progress to prolonged PR interval, a widened QRS, the sort of classical sine wave EKG of severe hyperkalemia, which can progress to ventricular fibrillation and and asystole. So importantly, one has to be familiar with the treatment of hyperkalemia. As you might remember from... Med school, step one, intern year, and certainly carrying into anesthesia and critical care training, first step is administering calcium, and this is to stabilize the myocardium. Other interventions to help combat hyperkalemia would be insulin in combination with dextrose if needed, if the patient is not in fact hyperglycemic, hyperventilation, and using beta agonists like albuterol. And these three interventions, the insulin, the hyperventilation, and the beta agonists, is all entirely to shift the potassium intracellularly. You're not changing total total body potassium at this point. And these are probably the interventions most easy to accomplish in a massive transfusion scenario. Potassium excretion methods like diuresis with loop diuretics or even hemodialysis are pretty difficult to implement in a trauma patient, especially one who's combating hypovolemia and hypotension in general. Importantly, the evidence is somewhat controversial regarding using bicarb for combating hyperkalemia. Certainly, Jed is not in huge favor of bicarb, especially if it's to treat lactic acidosis specifically, Uh, but certainly there's more literature to suggest a movement away from using bicarbonate to treat hyperkalemia. Yeah, definitely not a big fan, as as listeners know, of bicarb in the uh, lactic acidosis setting. And I agree with you, Stephen. I think that uh, the kind of the evidence is moving a little bit away from using it to treat hyperkalemia. Certainly, I would first go to insulin and dextrose, hyperventilation, and maybe even albuterol before uh, I thought about going to uh, bicarb. And I would probably try to avoid the bicarb uh, regardless. Absolutely. Next complication, as we mentioned briefly before, was hypocalcemia. And this is really an important complication that can be seen with massive transfusion. And this is because the citrate anticoagulant chelates calcium and it causes the hypocalcemia. 
and high citrate content is in FFP and platelets, actually. It's five times the amount of citrate than in the RBCs. So when transfusing in a one-to-one-to-one ratio, for example, requires a lot of calcium to keep up with the hypocalcemia that would otherwise be caused. Again, assuming an anesthetized patient, some of the findings you'll have with excuse me, hypocalcemia would be hypotension, decreased pulse pressure, and increased LVEDP, among others. The hypocalcemia is especially problematic in liver patients or, for example, if the Pringle maneuver is performed and the Pringle maneuver is essentially clamping of the hepatoduodenal ligament, interrupting the flow of blood to the liver in order to help control bleeding from the liver. And either a patient with coexisting liver disease or if the Pringle maneuver is performed, the liver can no longer metabolize citrate adequately, leading to worsening hypocalcemia. Additionally, infusions in excess of 50 cc's per minute, which we've certainly addressed, were often well above, and in neonates, hypocalcemia can particularly be a problem. The recommendations in general are 500 to 1,000 milligrams of calcium gluconate or 250 to 500 milligrams of calcium chloride for every 500 milliliters of product transfused. So practically, when I'm working with a team or what I'm thinking about in master transfusion is for every two products that go in, this patient should be receiving a dose of calcium. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think I used to think uh, that when I was giving a couple of units of FFP, so about 500 cc's of FFP, I would give a gram of calcium chloride, um, so so 1,000 milligrams. And similarly, if I gave maybe two to three uh, units of PAC cells, then I'm thinking about the same thing maybe four. But uh, when you're thinking about wanting to see where you're at, you want to make sure you're looking at the iCal, right? The ionized calcium. So that's what's getting bound by the citrate. And you may not see a big change in your overall calcium, but most of the time, if you're sending a blood gas, you're getting a stat lab that is going to come back with an ionized calcium. And that's what you're going to want to look at to figure out where you're at with your calcium balance. You mentioned the things you see with hypocalcemia, I think all really important to keep in mind. One way to help remember this is if you've done any kind of cardiac anesthesia, we often, for hypotensive post-op cardiac patients, we give calcium all the time, and we see an increase in the contractility and in the blood pressure. And so if you think the reverse, when they're hypocalcemic, Stephen mentioned, they can have decreased LVEDP, so that's left ventricular end diastolic pressure or volume. In other words, their LV is not working as well because it needs that calcium to squeeze. That's why we give it to the post-op cardiac patients. All right. Great. Other complications, or are you ready to move on? No, there's no shortage of them. Next one to talk about is hypothermia. And hypothermia can develop rapidly with the transfusion of of products. An hour of surgery plus transfusion of 10 units of cold product can drop the core temperature by 3 degrees Celsius. And this hypothermia can lead to arrhythmia and, importantly, worsen coagulopathy. In fact, often referred to in the literature as the lethal triad of hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis because they all kind of work in this vicious cycle and worsen each other, so to speak. And it's known that bleeding worsens below 35 degrees Celsius. Additional important concept to keep in mind is that viscoelastic testing, like TEGS, and even COAG tests are run at 37 degrees Celsius. Therefore, they will come back normal, if otherwise normal, in a bleeding patient if they're cold. So that can be one way to be falsely to be misled, essentially. And the ways to combat the hypothermia would certainly be using the blood warmer, using a forced air warmer, and increasing room temp. And I will say that in a bleeding trauma patient, it's often one of the few scenarios where we can get the surgeons to agree to increase room temperature with very little debate. 
Yeah, those trauma ORs are often pretty warm. You're setting up in there and sweating right from the beginning, but they, as you say, they need to be. So the uh, I just want to stress what you said. The Rotem, if, if you took a patient who had a coagulopathy, but then because they were cold, and then you warm up the blood to do your coags or to do your Rotem or to do your TEG, that may come back normal, even though in the patient, it's going to be they have a coagulopathy because they're cold. So exactly, that's that's the key thing. The there. viscoelastic testing is a great, and we'll talk more about it, but a great sort of model for in vitro um, coagulation status. But you will miss the contribution of hypothermia with those tests because the blood is warmed. Right. So a patient who's got platelets of ten, you're going to see it on your rotem no matter what temperature they are. But a, pla- a patient with everything normal in terms of their numbers, but who's got just a cold coagulopathy, you're not going to see that. Exactly. All right. What's next? I think that takes us really nicely into coagulopathy, and that's one of the other biggest complications to manage. A lot of this is from dilutional effect. If you're giving crystalloid or giving packed red blood cells in excess of the ratio we've talked about, you'll dilute out all your clotting factors. However, there's more to it than that, and there's a lot of mechanisms proposed um, from tissue injury and activation of anticoagulant and thrombolytic pathways and fibrolytic pathways. And overall, it's a multifactorial process, the coagulopathy of trauma, both being dilutional and a prolific cascade of mediators that can affect the coagulation cascade. So importantly, you have to be able to measure your coagulation activity. And these would include sending labs like your platelet count, fibrinogen, and PTINR every 30 to 60 minutes. However, these tests have limitations. Namely, both platelet count and fibrinogen are only quantitative tests. It can give you a number, but that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about how well those factors or those platelets are functioning. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Additionally, those tests typically take about 30 to 60 minutes to run. So by the time you get a result back, it might be tough or too late to act on, so to speak. And largely for that reason, there's this growing use of viscoelastic testing. Again, either TEG or Rotem. Here at Johns Hopkins, we use TEG. They're faster to result, and they give a better idea of, excuse me, in vivo coagulation status. So often with a massive transfusion patient, we'll send TEGs about every hour. So in a brief way to sort of review TEG um, in terms of the therapy for the coagulopathy, for a patient who has a prolonged R time, that often indicates or and also if they have a prolonged PTINR, but in this case an R time, indicates that there's a deficiency in clotting factors. And for that, suggests that the patient needs plasma or FFP. And R time, Stephen, tell us what that is. So the R time is basically the time from the initiation of the TEG study until there's first detection of a clot in the piston cup module. Okay, so it's the time for a clot to form, basically. Exactly. And if, as you said, if it takes longer than usual, it means that you are missing coagulation factors, and so what are you going to give? FFP. Great. All right. What's our next part of the tag? Next part of the tag to often look at would be the maximum amplitude, and a decreased maximum ampl- amplitude typically suggests uh, platelet dysfunction or thrombocytopenia. So we'll typically transfuse platelets to help correct the MA, or again, if you have a platelet count less than 50,000, we're often using both tests simultaneously. Um, MA can uh, Reduced MA can also be a fibrinogen defect, but I often typically think of it more in terms of platelets. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It can be either one. Uh, often you're going to know your fibrinogen because you have that number. And so if you're low, you're going to give cryo. But if your fibrinogen is a reasonable number and the MA is low, then you know it's the platelets, either low low number of platelets or low 
uh, or poor platelet function, I think of the MA as the strength of the clot. So you got to have platelets and fibrinogen to make that clot strong. You need the coagulation factors to start building it, and then it's going to get strong based on the interweaving of the platelets and the fibrinogen. So that's why the MA represents those two factors. All right, anything else you look at? So the other thing to look at in terms of treating the coagulopathy would be, as mentioned, looking at the fibrinogen level or the alpha angle often represents uh, fibrinogen activity. And you're shooting for an angle less than 60 um, or often transfusing cryoprecipitate to achieve uh, fibrinogen level greater than ranging between 150 to 200 is often what we shoot for. Great. And then do you look at fibrinolysis on the tag? Absolutely. So fibrinolysis is the last component of the TEG, and that would suggest that you need an antifibrinolytic like TXA or Amicar. Interestingly, from the CRASH-2 study was a randomized controlled trial from the Lancet in 2010, and it demonstrated the use of tranexamic acid in trauma patients suffering from significant hemorrhage reduces all-cause mortality without any significant increase in the incidence of fatal or non-fatal vaso-occlusive events. We don't typically use antifibrinolytics for all trauma patients. Here at Johns Hopkins, we use it for many other surgeries like cardiac surgery or large spine surgery, but certainly there are institutions that are more regularly using antifibrinolytics for all trauma patients. Great. So when you are running that tag and you see that clot form, that kind of graph of the clot form on it, and then if it starts to go down back to a point as opposed to staying at the maximum amplitude, that's where you worry about fibrinolysis and where you might want to give the tranexamic acid or the amicar. Exactly. Okay. And lastly, there's a couple other adjuvants for treatment of coagulopathy that are more controversial. We won't get too much into them, but certainly recombinant factor 7A is controversial and very expensive, but it has been used. Sometimes prothrombin concentrates or PCCs are given in massive transfusion or even giving uh, desmopressin to help with platelet function. But those are certainly more controversial and not as well studied. And we'll do them occasionally here if we're really in sort of desperation mode, um, but they're used less frequently. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, Factor 7A, a lot of complications, a lot of possibility for clot and thrombosis. But I think usually when you're kind of throwing the kitchen sink at people, uh, often that gets broken out. You also want to make sure if you're going to use it that you have – Uh, replenished your factors because it needs the presence of the factors in order to be effective. All right, what's next? Next would be addressing the lung injury that can occur from massive transfusion or often any blood transfusion, but specifically in the setting of massive transfusion. These two types primarily being trolley or transfusion-associated lung injury, which is defined as acute onset, and it must be during or within six hours of transfusion, of hypoxemia, with the presence of bilateral infiltrates on frontal chest radiograph, no evidence of circulatory overload or left atrial hypertension, and no pre-existing acute lung injury or ARDS before the transfusion, because certainly trolley can look almost identical to ARDS otherwise. An important board question here that I've seen more than once is that trolley is the leading cause of transfusion-related mortality. Some will actually argue that it's TACO, which we'll talk about. TACO is often more common, but the correct answer I've seen for number one cause of transfusion mortality is trolley. Yeah, I think that's right. And people, by the way, are going to be sitting out there thinking, "What's why is he talking about tacos? We mean transfusion-associated circuitry overload, which you can talk about in a second. I think uh, that we can also point out that, especially in countries that have stopped 
taking FFP from women who have had children, the incidence of trolley has gone way down because it's thought to be related to the HLA antibodies from the interaction when women are pregnant. They develop these antibodies, which then get into the plasma. And when they donate plasma, it can lead to trolley. So that is hopefully as more and more, as we go more and more away from those uh, donations, we'll be seeing less trolley. Exactly. And related to that, and another board question that I've seen is that trolley can actually be associated with leukopenia, and that's specific to trolley as a result of pulmonary sequestration of the neutrophils related to this HLA incompatibility, um, often from donations from plasma from pregnant women. Absolutely. Uh, and another important board question is that trolley is most associated with plasma-rich components. So namely, the answer you'll probably be looking to select would be FFP. It is plasma. But also to keep in mind, platelets and whole blood also do have plasma components to them. So now moving away from trolley, the other primary lung injury we look at is TACO, which I referred to earlier, which is arguably the best acronym of all time. Absolutely. Uh, so this is transfusion-associated circulatory overload. It's very similar to trolley, but the big difference is there's signs of volume overload and the specifically defined as a wedge pressure of greater than 18. And this is the second most cause of transfusion-related death. Yeah, now, uh, so wedge pressure, obviously, you only get if you have a swan in, which we often won't. And so what are, what are some sort of classic symptoms of circulatory overload that you may see uh, in someone without a swan? So things like pulmonary edema, peripheral edema, uh, JVD, things of that nature. Absolutely. Great. Okay. All right. Stephen, do you worry about infection when you're giving this much blood to people? Certainly, infection is a risk that we worry about with these volumes of blood. Overall, though, people certainly think of viral transmission as being the main concern. The leading transmitted virus by blood transfusion is still hepatitis B virus, and the incidence being about 1 in 250,000. HIV and HCV due to better screening now is much, much lower, looking at less than 1 in 2 million. But the important thing to think about, and is another board question I've seen, is actually the most common type of infection transmitted is actually bacterial infection. And what the product most associated with this is platelet transfusion. And this is because platelets carry a higher risk of contamination because platelets are stored at room temperature. All right. So anything else? We've covered a lot of great stuff. Anything else you think we should cover? I think those are the big ones. A couple smaller ones to still keep in mind would be that massive transfusion or any transfusion the blood has a decreased 2,3 DPG level, and what this causes is a left shift in your hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve, and you essentially have decreased O2 unloading at the tissue level. Of course, this is something very difficult to measure, but it's important to think about because that's defeating or against the ultimate goal of what we're trying to accomplish with massive transfusion. Other smaller things, or not necessarily a small thing, but transfusion reactions, you one always has to keep in mind that can occur with any blood transfusion, and the main types being hemolytic transfusion reaction due to ABO incompatibility, febrile transfusion reactions due to antibodies to the leukocytes in the donor blood, allergic reactions, which is due to reaction to the donor plasma proteins, and then any of the delayed immunological reactions. And specifically related to immunomodulation is that allogeneic transfusions suppress cell-mediated immunity and may place patients at risk for postoperative infection. So those are just some of the smaller things to keep in mind, and I've 
can't say if they seem to be as frequently tested, but they are very real complications. Absolutely. So a couple other things. When you are uh, massively transfusing someone, we talked about infection, but what about antibiotics? You're giving prophylactic antibiotics. How often do you feel like you need to redose if you're transfusing a ton of blood? That's a great point. I'm not as familiar with the evidence regarding that, but typically our protocol here at Johns Hopkins is to redose our antibiotics um, at approximately every 1,500 milliliters of blood loss. Yeah, that's my uh, what I do as well, and I think that's pretty evidence-based. And then the other thing maybe we can just touch on briefly, someone comes in massively bleeding. We don't have a type and screen. What are you going to do in terms of uh, type of blood you're going to give them? So it's ideal to obtain type and screen for the patient so they can get properly cross-matched blood. If that's not available, the first choice would be to give O positive blood. It's the blood type that's the universal donor that you can give to any patient. And if it's a woman of childbearing age, the preference is actually to give O negative blood in order to avoid developing antibodies to the Rho antigen, which could potentially predispose that woman to high drops fetalis if she were to become pregnant in the future. Right. So that's exactly right. So we, our, our practice here at Hopkins, and I think in most places, is a man who comes in or a postmenopausal woman can get O-positive blood. There's really no downside to that as emergency blood. The obviously preference, as you said, is to type and screen them. But a woman of childbearing age gets O-negative. And again, if we, there's actually no harm in the moment, right, to a woman who gets O positive blood, it's that if she later gets pregnant and she's developed those antibodies and the baby is O positive, then that woman's antibodies, the anti-Rho antibodies that she's now developed, can attack that baby's blood cells and, as you said, cause high drops fetalis in that baby, which can be fatal in utero. All right, so that's what we want to do. O positive, except for childbearing age women, get O negative if we don't have a type and screen. All right. We talked about redosing antibiotics. We talked about the O negative blood. Stephen, any last words? You've covered a lot of great stuff. I think that's about all I have for us. Just a little bit of brief, rapid review. Please. So, master transfusion is when you anticipate replacement of blood volume in less than 24 hours or greater than 50% of blood volume in three hours. Or essentially, when I think about it, is if things look really bad, I activate massive transfusion. Badness, activate it. Um, again, you want to activate your institution's protocol and then transfuse in a systematic manner. You need good IV access, use appropriate ratios for damage control resuscitation, transfuse to specific endpoints, and monitor those parameters. And the immediate complications that you're likely to see in the OR and need to manage include acid-based disturbance, hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, coagulopathy, and hypothermia. This is fantastic. Stephen, thank you so much. Thanks for being the inaugural resident. You did a fantastic job. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I want to thank Jed for having me. I was really excited to be here. I want to give a quick thanks to Dr. Steve Frank. He's one of my mentors, and he's really the blood management guru here at Johns Hopkins. And then, of course, the biggest thanks to all my fantastic co-residents and attendings who make coming to work every day rewarding and exciting. Thanks so much, Stephen. All right, that's it for today. Remember, you can check out the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can sign up for our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner. And, of course, you can leave comments on this or any episode. But let us know, what's your massive transfusion protocol at your institution? How does it work? Are there things we missed that you think are really important about trauma resuscitation or massive transfusion protocols? And let us know what you think. Of course, you can always email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com as well. We'll be doing some more on trauma and resuscitation with some of our uh, trauma docs here in upcoming weeks, so stay tuned for that. For the ACRAG Podcast and Dr. Stephen Freiberg, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, 
what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.